Welcome to the Vinyl Crawl, your podcast about craft beer and vinyl records. I'm your host, Alan Miller, joined by Matt Pepperkorn. Hey, Matt. Hello. So this season, we're going over niche genres, and we're talking mm-hmm. about what we think the, not necessarily what we think's the best album, but what's the most representative album of some of these genres. And the genre we're talking about today is Blue-Eyed Soul, Genre, yeah. genre that you particularly like. Yeah, maybe some. I it's guess. a broad genre. So it is it's a broad genre. You know, we go everywhere from Dusty Springfield that we're talking about today mm-hmm. to Adele is considered Blue Eyed Soul. Hmm. Okay. It's a it's a large gamut. That is a large gamut. Um, and the beer we're drinking with this is the Founders Fruit Wood. Yes. This is a hard this, line over the O on fruit. This is a. The red-eyed soul of craft beers. <laughs> it's something. It is a cherry ale aged in maple syrup bourbon barrels. Have you ever seen a maple syrup bourbon barrel? Um, I didn't know they made bourbon barrels out of maple syrup. That's what the label would seem to be suggesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A I've... cherry ale aged in maple syrup bourbon barrels. Interesting. Yeah. I've had a maple syrup bourbon beer have you really i'm trying to remember what it was it's been a while god what was that i don't know well you know cherry and bourbon's the big kind of craze right now i've seen jim beam put out Mm -hmm. a with is cherry stag is that them or is that jack daniels i think it's jim beam that is jim beam right yeah Yeah, all these different whiskeys have their little (laughs) cherry right cherry deal of it so this might be the craft beer version i don't i'm just gonna go ahead and say i'm not real crazy about it it is a 2017 release it says on the yeah on the bottle the quick byline on the back says they took a crisp light-bodied cherry ale and hid it away in oak barrels that have held both bourbon and maple syrup after a lengthy stint it emerged a changed beer i would definitely say that yeah uh notes of warm vanilla and earthy sweetness you getting any of that uh, that's what I was just trying. I'm, I get the cherry ale, mm-hmm. full frontal. <laughs> you just got flashed by a cherry ale, mm-hmm. full frontal. I get lots of cherry. I do get some vanilla, but it's like on the back end. I get some vanilla too, but it's like vanilla Coke vanilla. It's not like a necessarily yeah. a good vanilla. I don't know. I'm not sure where the maple syrup. <laughs> bourbon barrels are but it is definitely woody there's woody flavors in it yeah you can taste the earth um it's bottled on december 16th of 2016 and it's an 8% percent abv Weak. So. <laughs> so this is the first founders i've ever had that i wasn't crazy about yeah i don't mind it uh i probably could have let it age a little bit more i guess I don't you know. Think though, I don't know. This. I don't is, know if it would matter. Honestly, I don't, I don't think it would. These flavors are really strong. Yeah. I don't know if aging it would necessarily make it any better. Might calm it down a little bit. I'm. I would just be afraid that the flavors would get stronger with age. Or is that the opposite of? I don't it know. Some does? of it might fade away. 
it's possible. But they may not fade away. Also, you know, it wouldn't be wouldn't be the vinyl crawl if we don't get a Stones reference or a Buddy Holly reference or whoever else covered "Not Fade Away" in there somewhere. Grateful Dead, Grateful probably. Dead as well. Yeah, who has everybody's played that song? Pretty really. much. Yeah, I think I've even heard Jimmy Buffett play that song. Bummer. <laughs> Real bummer. God. So the album we're talking about yeah. today, which is not a bummer, no, is uh, "Dusty in Memphis." Um, Dusty, what? Uh, Spring, Springfield. Springfield. I just yeah. lost. My mind went blank. Dusty Springfield, Dusty in Memphis. I was thinking Rick Springfield, and I was like, <laughs> that's not right. It can't be right. That's a stretch for blue-eyed soul, but. <laughs> uh, it is It is a stretch for that. Um, so to give a quick rundown of what blue-eyed soul is, for anyone listening that's yes, not aware please. of it. It is, by definition, I guess, even though it's a loose definition, Rhythm and blues are soul performed by white artists. The reason that got coined was in the mid sixties. Uh, when the righteous brothers came out, a lot of people mistook them for a black group. So as kind of a joke, there was a DJ that coined the term blue eyed soul. So yeah. he would say, here's some hot blue eyed soul coming up for you to give a key <laughs> to the people listening that, Hey, these guys are white. These guys aren't really black. Yeah. That's how it originated. Now, what happened was it kind of turned into a derogatory term in a way to just lump any white people trying to mimic black soul. I mean, some people looked at it with endearment. Some people looked at it as derogatory. Some people just thought it was funny. Is Elvis blue-eyed soul? I think most definitely you can consider some Elvis blue-eyed soul. You know, Elvis is another one that's very... He ran a lot of different genres. He studied yeah. rockabilly. He went through the soul period. He had a country period, had a gospel period. He's pretty much stole anything he could. <laughs> anything that would make him a buck, he would sing it. <laughs> so, you know, there's even Creole period <laughs> there for true. a little bit. Right. But, uh, any, anything that would make him a buck, he would do. Blue owls, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> whatever it takes. Exotica, whatever you can throw at him. But yeah, I would consider him blue-eyed soul. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's good to point out that it actually started with the Righteous Brothers, which I think is so oh, bizarre. Yeah. It was Are when you a fan of the Righteous Brothers? I am a fan of the Righteous Brothers to the extent of I like their big singles, and that's that. Like, you've yeah. lost that loving feeling. I like that. And what was the other? Unchained, Unchained Melody. Yeah. I like both those. I think they're great. Um, they're good songs. Yeah, they're really they're great just songs. Good so- it's a great blueprint for what a song, what a top it's forty radio. I think they're great hit. to be indicative of the time. If you want to see yeah. what was popular with the white kids at at the makeout point, you put on Unchained Melody, right? And that's like what's playing on the radio when they're up on the cliff at the makeout point. You know what right. I'm saying? Like after the sock hop in the idealized <laughs> '50s America. Yeah. That's, that's what I like it for, but that it kind of ends there. I don't really like much else of the no, Righteous Brothers. No, they really didn't have that many other good songs, to be honest. No, they stretched it, yeah. and made a career out of it. But that was the, and I also should note that this is all coming from Bill Medley, which was one of the two guys in Righteous Brothers. So he could have just oh, been trying yeah. to ape it a little bit, probably. But regardless, the Blue Eyed Soul that term lasted from. Uh, mid '60s all the way to the '80s, even even in the late '80s, yeah. they were still calling people blue-eyed soul. That's really the that's the kind of period of it because after that, nobody really talked about blue-eyed yeah. soul much. Hall and Oates, 
And there's there's the eighties <laughs> version yeah, of Blue Eyed Soul. You pretty know? much. Live at the Apollo. Daryl Hall, he got he got lumped into it. Yeah. Just because he had a soulful voice and was white, they started calling it Blue Eyed right. Soul. And he actually took a lot of offense to it. Yeah. He did not like that term because he thought it was racist. He mm-hmm. thought it was derogatory. Yeah. I mean, racist thing is everybody. Like, it's it's just a, a yeah. derogatory term. He has a great voice. He does. And he was more or less paying his tribute to his favorite R&B artists. Right. You know. But so some, some notable artists, we already went through a couple. In modern times, Adele is considered part of that because she's a white girl with a very soulful voice. So yeah. she gets lumped in that category. Rick Astley was a big one in the 80s. Everybody thought the guy was black from the radio. You've, you've really? watched. There's so many interviews of people so saying the weird. first time they heard that, they thought he was a black dude. Now, you probably first saw him instead of hearing him. You probably saw the video on MTV before hearing him on the radio. I don't know. I can't remember. But at no point did I ever think. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've I've watched interviews with, like, you know, the... Yeah, I love the eighties and stuff like that, where they always talk about Rick Astley and there'll always be somebody like Rick James just might come on and say, it sounds like a black guy singing. <laughs> they always, they always put that little quote in there. So I guess that's why he's on the list. Eric Burden. Do yeah. you consider that? I wouldn't consider the animals. Not, not necessarily, blue-eyed. not necessarily animals, but definitely Eric Burden. He had the voice for it. We well, did, but. Cause that's what, that's what pinpoints the blue eyed soul is a white person that has a voice that's traditionally considered, you know, black soul or black R&B. But he never rang, uh, never sang R&B music or soul music, really. You don't think so? I don't know. I mean, he fronted war at a time, but that's more funk. I don't know. Yeah. But... It might be a stretch, but Joe Cocker. I don't See, I don't ever... No? I don't, I don't know. Well, Dion? maybe. About Dion. Dion... Dion to me is like fifties. This is and this is where this this it's subject so, gets it's tricky. So weird, yeah. Uh, Hall of Notes, of course. We've talked about that. Yeah. George Michael. Maybe. See, maybe. I think there's too many weird genres. Van Morrison. No. No. I don't know. I guess maybe. I don't know. That's... Steve Winwood. There's a softball. <laughs> oh, Steve Winwood. <laughs> Steve Winwood, Steve Winwood would be considered blue-eyed soul, right? He ain't got no soul. You talked to Spencer <laughs> Davis about that. He's got plenty of soul. I forgot about Spencer Davis. Yeah, give me some loving. Uh, that's, you know, that's pretty soulful. I'm thinking of. Uh, I don't. I can't even think of the bad '80s hits he had. But back in the high life again. There you go. And there was another. That's one. Pretty soulful. Higher love. Yeah. You're thinking of higher love. Now we're talking. What about? The small faces, like a certain era of the small faces with their singer. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he had that soulful voice as well. He was, So I guess you're going to say Rod Stewart's blue-eyed soul. I mean, he could possibly fit into the category. Great American Songbook, yeah. volumes one through 99. But that's these are kind of some of the names that get thrown around. when you When you look up blue-eyed soul, those are some of the names that get... And I mentioned to you earlier when we were talking off the podcast about David Bowie even got considered to be a little bit of, I think he was playing the character of yeah. Blue-Eyed Soul during like the Thin White Duke period. You know, he was playing that character, that that American yeah. white guy singing soul music character, right. like with young Americans and things like that. Then you got to 
put Brian Ferry down too then. For sure. You know. For sure. I would totally consider Brian Ferry that. Although Brian Ferry might be a little too abstract to fit into it. He's got a very strange vocal presence. Yeah, but Bowie does too. True. Yeah. So those are just some yeah. those are some names that get thrown around. Really. Yeah. But if you're looking at like what does it mean to be blue eyed soul, I think Dusty and Memphis is probably one of the best ways you could dive into that niche genre. Yeah. Um and this album's so I found one of the most mind blowing things about Dusty and Memphis, which we both found out today. Right. Yeah. Was the fact that she played a huge part in getting Led Zeppelin signed to Atlantic, if Wikipedia is if to it's be believed. True. Yeah. Apparently John Paul Jones played with her touring band in sixty seven probably. And then in sixty eight when she went to do Dusty in Memphis, she talked to the people at Atlantic and said, This band Led Zeppelin have started up. You guys need to sign them. You better sign them. And they had never listened to them before, but they went ahead and signed them based on her advice for like a huge yeah. contract. Like 200,000. 200, it was Wexler, wasn't it? I don't know if it was Wexler specifically, but she said she talked to the people at Atlantic, so yeah. it probably was Wexler. Yeah. But I find that so bizarre. I you, find it bizarre that neither one of us knew, or it's not in a book. I mean, you know. And it might be. We might just be. not have ever read it. Have you ever read the, um, what was that really famous Zeppelin? Hammer of the Gods. Hammer of the Gods. Have you ever yeah. read that? Yeah. Okay. I hadn't read that one, so. That's a fun book. <laughs> was that how the, like, Mud Shark story got started? I think started? so, okay. yeah. All right. Yeah. We're not going to dive into that one, but. <laughs> uh, but um. Yeah, but that I just think that's such a weird aside to say yeah. that that Dusty Springfield had to do with Zeppelin doing anything, because yeah, the, you cannot listen to Dusty and Memphis and Zeppelin one together and think no. that there's any similarity. But between you can the two. listen to the Honey Drippers and uh, Blue Eyed oh, Soul. Here we Soul. go, Blue Eyed Soul again. Blue Eyed Soul. I guess Robert Plant tried. <laughs> I guess right. he tried his little dip in the. His little honey dip into Blue Eyed Soul as well. Ugh. We should have had a honey barrel age. Oh this is getting better, by the way. Is it getting better too? The more it like, gets to so, room yeah. temperature? Let me see. It is taming a little bit. Yeah. I'll be honest. Yeah. Once the carbonation eases off a little. Right. It's not. It's yeah. getting better. Yeah. More cherry. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Dusty in Memphis. I've got some bullet points that I want to talk <laughs> <Okay>. about because <laughs> I was listening Just to it and reading about it. Roll down your And I was list thinking, there. like, what would what would Matt like to talk about? And the first thing is her white-hot band she had playing with her. This was recorded at American Sound Studio in Memphis, really, really important studio down yeah. there, with the Memphis Boys, as they were called. You had all these different groups of guys that played at these mm-hmm. studios. You had the Muscle Shoals Swampers. Yep, you that's right. in California the, the hit. What were they called? Uh, the something crew. Wrecking Crew. Wrecking Crew. Had Wrecking Crew yeah. down in California. I don't know if New York had a group that necessarily were playing. But then you had these guys in Memphis. They yeah. were all well-known. Uh, drummer, Gene Chrisman. Mm-hmm. Bassist, Tommy... How you say his, say his last name? Cobill? Cogbill? I'm not sure. Yeah. He's... Anyhow, he's a hugely influential bassist. Yeah. His his bass playing on this album is incredible. 
I mean, just the most like the most famous song is easily "Son of a Preacher Man." Easily, and that guitar and bass, everything on that song, yeah. hits on all cylinders. For the, sure, the mono was better, by the way. The mo- and that's another thing that we have to talk about <laughs> with this album. Yeah. So if any of you listening have Spotify, do me a favor and go listen to the stereo release. Listen to the first. 30 seconds of the first track on the stereo release and then flip it to mono and it is night and day. It is night and day. It is so much punchier on the mono release. The band sounds a lot more alive than the stereo release. Mm -hmm. The stereo has way too much air in it. Like you don't get the, you don't get the like Southern drawl of the album with the stereo release. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but like the band, it's like they're in the back somewhere. Yeah. None of and even her vocals aren't up front really. It's just a strange no. mix. Yeah. I wonder if it might be one of those that was like recorded in mono and then they tried to rechannel it to stereo at some time. I don't know. That wouldn't you make know sense. How, but... You know how they used to do that a lot. They would take yeah. a mono and then rechannel it. But the mono recording sounds great. Yeah. If you're gonna listen to it, I'd say do it that way. Or the um there's another like expanded edition on there and it it's mixed really well too. So yeah. It's actually in stereo, but it's mixed really well. Yeah, I remember uh, that one. So yeah, so the band is top great. notch. It's great. The back. Who are the background singers? Too. I uh, didn't write them down, but they are extremely important. Yes, yeah. because they are all over it. Yeah, they've got a name that they went by. They had like a a little. A they group did. Name. It wasn't like the. <clears throat> it was the something singers or something yeah, like that. Inspirational or something inspiring. I don't know. But yeah, like we were saying earlier, album produced by Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd. There were two big names on it. Wexler was doing Aretha at the same time as well. He was producing all of her stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is all in the in the playbook for Jerry Wexler. He was he was churning out these soulful albums, soulful female albums. That was that was just his thing at the yeah. time. The same way Phil Spector was doing his sound, Wexler was doing his sound with Aretha and. Well, and wasn't that at the time when he was going against uh, the the Swampers and all that? Like, yes. that was the battle. Yeah. That was the same time yeah. period. Yeah. sure was. Um, another really interesting thing I found out about Dusty and Memphis from looking at the songs was that a lot of songs were written by Carole King, yep. Randy Newman, and Burt Bacharach. Mm-hmm. You can hear Bacharach all over oh, this album. Oh, yeah. Those Heck, really yeah. fun like turns and orchestral moves that Bacharach likes to do in a song, you can hear all in this. The the whole... Um, like The arrangements and yeah, everything. It's, it's very much like, uh, like what the world needs now is love, like that kind mm-hmm. of arrangement on so many of these songs. Yeah. And I think it's great. I think it fits her voice perfectly. And you can, when you're listening, you can hear a Carole King song versus a Burt Bacharach from yeah. their two different writing, oh, yeah. their yeah. Two writing styles. Um, and it's really fun to listen to in that way if you don't look at who wrote it and try to picture the song yes, in your head who, yeah. and then go, oh, who does this sound like? But I, and, I, and you can also tell the Randy Newman, his writing style, because the song, there's two songs, I think there are Newman songs on there. And, um, and this is before he'd even had an album, I think. I don't think his first album was until maybe 69 or 70. Yeah, that may so be. So he must have been young writing mm-hmm. his songs. But the way he does his piano melodies, you can really hear on his songs that he wrote for her on this album too. 
Sweet Inspirations. Sweet Inspirations. That, that was the name of the backing. Yeah. Backing singers. Um, so yeah, that that's a, a couple really neat things about the album. The other thing that I found really interesting, and I'm sure you read about this too when you were looking it up, was the fact that she recorded all of her vocals in New York, or finished her vocals, I should say, in New York, because she got so overwhelmed right. trying to sing them in Memphis. Yeah. Because she was at this, you know, she's from Britain. She's English. She's in Memphis in the studio where all of these amazing artists have recorded. And it was, I think it was just too much for her. Overwhelming. Instead of feeding off that energy, she backed off. And that, I find that so shocking with her voice because her voice is incredible. Yeah. On the whole album. Right. It's very soft when it needs to be and she can, she can get it strong when it Mm -hmm. needs to be as well. Um, and you can hear all that on Son of a Preacher, man. That song like oh, yeah. sums up the whole album. Pretty much does. Yeah. The other thing that was weird <clears throat> that I found out is uh all the song like Wexler was trying to get her to listen to these songs and yeah. pick some and she kept turning down song after song after song. Right. So maybe she just couldn't get in the groove there. Right, and there was like differing opinions on that because Wexler said she turned them all down. She said that she didn't turn them all down. Yeah. She said that she liked Son of a Preacher Man and another song. I can't remember the other one. But she said she liked both of those, and that was, I don't know. I, who knows? It's one of those deals where it's yeah. two people fighting back and forth. But to turn any of them down Why would is you? strange to me yeah. because they're so they're all good songs. Now, one interesting thing is if you listen to the expanded edition, did you did you get a chance to listen to that one at all? I decided not to. I used to have the CD with the expanded. Yeah. And every time I listen to it, it's too much. It really is. It's too much. It starts getting to too much into AM radio territory. Yeah. yeah. But I, I thought it was interesting that she did Make It With You, the bread song. Oh, yeah. On the expanded yeah. edition. And a really good rendition of it's it. It's not bad. Probably better than the bread version. Probably. It still teeters on AM gold. Oh, it's... It's Big complete time. AM gold. You know. The only, and we talked about this too, the only thing that really keeps this album from teetering too far to AM gold and to like whatever your parents would listen to, like adult contemporary kind yeah. of thing, is uh, the fact that her voice is so like smoky and sultry yeah. and strong. Yep. It's that it's that edge to her voice that allows it to to turn into something else than just a standard that right. that any singer could sing. So, and that's interesting when you said adult contemporary. So, are blue-eyed soul and adult contemporary, is that the same thing? No, I think they can dip in and out of each other. Yeah. Like, you can have songs that, that go in and out of both of those. But I think that adult contemporary is probably too broad of a term. Like, it can encapsulate almost anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hear songs that were like grunge songs I listened to as a kid that are adult contemporary <laughs> now. And I'm like, where, what happened? How did Nirvana's this Nirvana's classic rock. Exactly. Nirvana's <laughs> classic rock. So I think adult contemporary is like a, just a, a term that changes over time depending on what year yeah. it is. But I guess maybe, I'm trying to think of who I could compare her to that would that would show the difference between her and a, and a different like more easygoing vocalist. Like, I mean, is is Peggy Lee like a comparison? Oh, or Nancy Sinatra? Or Na- Nancy Sinatra. Nancy. That's perfect. Yeah. So Nancy always stayed a little more even keel. Like she, you know, 
outside of like boots are made for walking and that sort of thing. But even that is a even pretty subdued track. Pretty pedestrian. I right. mean, Dusty is taking chances. This is more meaty. And, like yeah. there's more grit to it. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that is owed to the band, the background singers. You know, that's what really makes the app. Now her voice. Yes. Yeah. But, but without those components, she just, she's just somebody singing standards. Yeah. You would have a basic, Peggy Lee, Nancy Sinatra album. Yeah. I, something else that I found really interesting about this album is as much as people know it now, at the time it was a failure Yeah, when it came out. Yeah. It was a flop. And it didn't get popular until people started buying it in secondhand shops, like used. Yeah. To me, that is so bizarre that this album wasn't bigger than it was. I, I think Son of a Preacher Man was big when it first came out. I think that single Probably. did well. But the album just didn't sell. Yeah. Well, you had to rely on radio. If radio wasn't going to play it, it's not going to get heard. It's not going to get That's very bought. true. It was a different time for yeah. that sort of thing. If, if you didn't have at least probably three singles popping on the record, then it wasn't going to yeah. sell. But why wasn't every station across America playing Son of a Preacher Man? You know, that's a built-in radio well, hit. is it, though? Because it, it is pretty risque. I mean, for its time. When did the album come out? 68. 68. Yeah, but by then you had the Stones and the Who and Hendrix. But, but still but how much how much radio play were the Stones getting on like songs that were yeah. that were edgier, you know? And that probably wouldn't play it in the South. Right. Which is it's a song of we, the South. It's a song <laughs> of the South, yeah. It's not song of the South. It's a song that would get played in the <laughs> right, South. Right, right. There we go. Wow. Um <laughs> So yeah, so moving on from there, there's another song on there that um, that I thought was really interesting, and that was "So Much Love." Yeah. Uh, one because it's a Goffin King tune, so Carol King and and Goffin wrote that, but also because Benny King recorded it before Dusty, and had it as a hit before Dusty, and then after Dusty, everybody covered it, including mm-hmm. the Hourglass, <laughs> which was the Almond Brothers band, yeah. basically before. Yep. Some of the Almond Brothers got yeah. it. And Blood, Sweat, and Tears covered it. Yeah. Darling Love covered it. Like, that was a huge, that turned mm-hmm. into a huge standard. I could um, see Darlene Love. That's songs made for her. For sure. For sure. Um, and then the other one that I thought was interesting was called Just One Smile. Yeah. Because it's originally recorded by Gene Pitney, which is odd. Mm. That yeah. just seems like an odd fit to pitch to her. Yeah. But it's a Randy Newman song, so maybe they just knew the song was good, so they pitched it to Right. Him. His songs are pretty versatile, though, to be sung by right. and, anybody. Right, and even then, like, her, I guess, like, the Newman songs on there are not, like, typical Randy Newman that we know, like, yeah. it's a jungle out there, short people, or stuff sure. like that. It's not like that kind of Randy Newman. It's more like let's craft a good pop song, Randy Newman. Yeah. But you can hear his little his things he does, like when he turns the bridge around and does stuff like that. Wonder has there ever been a Randy Newman cover album? There needs to be like a tribute oh, yeah. thing. You remember the Nilsson album? Where Nilsson covered Randy Newman or Randy Newman covered oh, Nilsson? Oh yeah. But I'm talking about various artists. Oh, people, okay. You like know. a tribute album to Yeah. There should. There I should mean, be. I feel like he's finally had a resurgence where he could get his due. Yeah. We, you know, growing up, 
all I knew oh. was like, I love LA and stuff like that. So awesome video. Yeah. But like not the coolest stuff to listen to no. when you're growing up. No. It took me getting into my mid to late twenties to go back to like good old boys. Yeah. Or, um, or his first album or sail on or yeah. Yeah, sail away. Have you heard away, uh, Willie Nelson's version of Louisiana? No. It's pretty awesome. I need to though. Yeah. That that sounds perfect for Willie Nelson. Well, he I forgot what album it was on. It always will be, I think. But he specifically picked that song to do when Katrina happened. Oh wow. Yeah. So I mean perfect, you know. Yeah, that's that's big. I mean yeah. there's a lot of really heavy Randy Newman songs. Oh yeah. And I feel like it gets overshadowed by short people and stuff like that. Like no pun <laughs> anyways i i feel like that his and his disney songs they always everybody knows you got a friend of me and stuff right. like that yeah but he had some really hard-hitting social songs oh, yeah. in the 70s yeah that were great and he was well respected among his peers for writing those songs like that yeah they just weren't sing-alongs they weren't stuff right they're really wordy they they were they, not radio hits yeah they use a lot of a lot of weird language and a lot of weird storytelling, yeah. but I'd, he's a great songwriter. And mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, he's on Dusty's album is a testament to that. As, yeah. as is Carol King. Carol King is one of the finest songwriters oh, yeah. we've had in yeah. America. But yeah. And Bacharach too. I mean, who doesn't love a little no bit of just there. Yeah. You got to have switched on Bacharach. That's an album that everybody <laughs> should own. Right. Bacharach <laughs> songs by the Mo with a guy playing a Moog. <laughs> That's the best. The greatest. So what, like, what's your takeaway on this album? What, what makes you, do you go back to it? What, do you ever put it on? Occasionally. It's not a go-to or anything. I mean, I don't really consider it a five-star album. Mm -hmm. She has a wonderful voice. Right. The band is tight. You know, I mean, as a total package, it's great. Yeah. It's probably four stars four star yeah and not hard to come by like you can usually find it anywhere i mean you used to be able to i think you probably still can yeah if you go in any record shop you should be able to find it used i'm sure it's uh in the top 50 top 100 how many times do you think you've seen it come through the shop while we've been working there maybe four three three, four times and we really only ever see that album of hers and one other one well and that's the thing i mean is she a one-hit wonder? Uh, you could. I, mean, I think you could definitely put her in that category if you wanted to. I think it might be a little unfair, but at the same time, she wasn't writing any of her own songs, so I think that hurts her a little bit. Yeah, at the time. That's the thing that keeps me from putting it maybe five stars. Yeah, is you know she has a great voice, but she doesn't play an instrument. She doesn't write any songs. You know, and that's a whole another topic for a whole another podcast. It sure about, is. About yeah, what, what makes not... uh, what makes an artist an artist yeah. and all that whole thing. Elvis, Elvis, yeah. All right. Well, I think we're in agreement then. Yeah. It's I mean, what do you think it is? Is it a five star album to you? No. Yeah. No, I don't. I think it's like a four, two, four and a half, somewhere in yeah. there. Um, I think it is. Me personally, for Blue Eyed Soul, I would take Hollow Notes over Dusty Springfield. Really? Yeah, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, 
I'm a sucker for Sarah Smile, though. I'm dude. I'm a sucker for Hall and Oates. Yeah. I'm a sucker for you making my dreams come true. You're like <laughs> I love all that stuff. I I think that um. Kimmy Rock. Exactly. You know, I even She's go into. I even go into like Daryl Hall's solo album. I tried to get you to listen to it. To, Man, I tried. To take it in Sacred Songs. I tried. Songs. I'll go back again. And Sacred Songs is not Blue Eyed Soul. It's very experimental. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, for me, like I would pick a Hollow Notes album over this for my favorite Blue Eyed Soul. But I think this album's the template for it. Yeah. So that's oh, why yeah, I think it deserves to be. Just a little of it. Just something to kind of see them through.